0: Our sermon text is taken from Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Be seated. Good morning. Uh, If you heard Mike fumble a little, uh, he was messing with my notes and he said, Josh. And if you got excited that Josh Birch might be here preaching, I'm sorry you have me. Um, But we're uh, continuing our mini-series on prayer and prayer in the Bible. Um, And so I'm going to begin with a story about World War II. So on on April 15th of 1945, British troops advanced far enough to find the concentration camp called Bergen-Belsen. This is what they found. Barracks with about 60,000 men and women and children packed together without food or water. Additionally, a rough count of about 10,000 unburied corpses lying around. The newly liberated prisoners were rife with dysentery, typhus, and tuberculosis. Everybody had some stage of malnutrition, and the British soldiers had to stay for many months nurturing everyone back to health before they could go home. Many died within, within weeks, because they had eaten for the first time in so long. As many other camps were being liberated in the end of the war, plenty of the letters that were sent home by former prisoners or soldiers have a similar theme. That is, they wanted their loved ones to know these things were possible and happening. It seems that many people outside of the thick of the conflict had a difficult time believing the former rumors of these camps. Now, this is a type of sin and suffering I can nearly guarantee You will not experience. But the reason I wanted to start with that story is because it depicts a reality of sin in which people are tortured so much to the frequency that even in the midst of a Second World War, it was hard for others to believe. And our original recipients of our text this morning were just recently freed from one of the most egregious sins in existence, which is slavery. For 500 years, in fact, they toiled, so they do know a very long extent to which sin can reach. However, they have been rescued by God into a holy covenant now, which means though they have been freed from the testing of their physical limits, God now is going to be testing them in holiness. As the people receive this benediction, it should serve as a pivotal and, ground, pivotal and groundbreaking for the nation. So let's get down to it, and I'll read it again. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So this poem in scripture is quite well known. The power of this passage has been the framework for much of our corporate worship. This passage includes God's promise of grace and peace. We find that is relevant for comfort in many hardships. Sure, this passage is encouraging, but as we look at this prayer together, my hope is that we could even pray this prayer for each other here at Vine Street and to our neighbors. However, I believe that this passage has much more to offer our church than merely a model of prayer. We must wonder, what is God truly conveying about himself and his desire to bless people? And if prayer is powerful, then where is God? What I hope to show you in this benediction of the priests is that God not only desires, but is also adamant about giving us his protection, his presence, and his peace. But even if you've memorized this passage or have it on a shirt, we must agree that it is an an inconspicuous location in Scripture. So when is this benediction happening? Well, it is, of course, after the exodus from Egypt. And in the exodus, God begins to establish the Israelites as his very own people. But now the Israelites have come to Mount Sinai, where he will lay before them commands and statutes, which God calls his law. God's law is put in place so that God's people will honor him as Lord, and by providence, they shall be a witness of God's holiness to the surrounding nations. In addition, God has set apart the tribe of Levi to maintain his tabernacle by ordering them to facilitate worship, guard the temple, and attend to various duties. But we must unveil a hard distinction between the Levites and priests before we continue. Throughout the first five chapters of Numbers, God gives commands to the Levites depending on which of Levi's sons they had descended from. This included a rule that only the descendants of Levi's son Kohath were delegated as priests. The priests' overall goal was to safeguard the purity of the people while bringing divine blessing and well being upon them. And Aaron was their high priest. Levites who were not priests were to assist other priests, or the priests, sorry, in whatever they needed. So overall, the priests are especially important for Israel as they mediate between God and his people. But here is the pivotal setting. This generation of Israel is about to see the promised land for the first time. So the last several books and chapters are not just about gaining policies on worship and civility. God is preparing the nation to see the promised land, and they will need God's help. So that is where this benediction stands. The nation is about to be tested, and they are going to realize that they will have to fight for their land, and in that, trust God through death and strife. Furthermore, in trusting God, they must realize that God loves them and desires to bless them in a unique way. So our point number one for this morning is God desires protection for us. So let's go ahead and take a closer look at the passage. The Lord bless you. not just what you say after someone sneezes. In the first half of verse 24, God is striking the Israelites at the heart of their concerns. He promises to bless them, but what kind of blessing would the Israelites have imagined? Well, some things that God promises the Israelites throughout the first five books are, in an earthly sense, God promises the Israelites fruitful harvests that would sustain them. Also, peace in the land by victory in battle. God promises fertility and health, and finally, the ultimate blessing, peace with God. These promises are imminent realities for the Israelites and are even more amplified in God's promise to keep his people in the end of the verse. What is God essentially communicating? God is merciful and says that he will bless his people in all these extraordinary ways, And the act of keeping would have been and is the utmost expression of these blessings. In Scripture, when God is keeping, it is typically an act summarized in God's observation and God's protecting. But God is not addressing you and I specifically here. In all of God's promises to these people, he has established specific covenants in which the benefits were conditional on the account of the nation's obedience. So how can we be sure that God desires to protect us? Well, Romans 5 might help us here. Romans 5:19 through 21 says, "For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But what does this have to do with protection? Christ died and was raised for you to escape his Father's wrath, and we receive blessings from God on account of Christ's work rather than our own work. Christ also echoes his Father's promise and reinstates it when he promises to never leave us nor forsake us in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. These blessings are freely given on account of Christ's obedience rather than our own. So what is the truth about God's protection? The truth is that if you are in Christ, God is preserving you now for the advancement of the gospel and eternally for the safety of your soul, because God loves you and he wants us to fill his kingdom. That may mean that we will experience suffering for his name. But we are not all called to be missionaries or martyrs. However, we are all called in some way to share the gospel. May we even be so faithful to die for it. And if we do, God is protecting our souls to be united with him in paradise. But God did not intend for only our souls to be protected. What about those of us being afflicted with illness, or perhaps harassment, abuse, or what about Christians in hostile places? Does God desire to be yours and their earthly provider, preserver, and protector? Absolutely. God has shown us his power in Scripture to heal and mend. Scripture even calls him the great physician. In addition, Psalm 27 5 states, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So God can help us by preserving us from evil too. But we shall not be legalists about God's kindness. It would be faulty and a disservice to assume that God chose not to heal or protect us for a certain looming sin in our lives. I am not dismissing earthly consequences for sin, though. While Christ says we will reap what we sow, most of the time we cannot trace a certain trial to a certain sin. It would be horrendous for us to live in extraordinary guilt after Christ has freed us from bondage. But 1 John 5.14 could be a great comfort. It says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The truth in scripture is that we can be confident in God's desire to protect us and to provide for our earthly needs. But ultimately, if we are in Christ, he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what is the point here? Sometimes healing and sustaining provision is not in his will for us. But brothers and sisters, we shall not stop praying because God has said no. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 urges us to pray without season because that is God's will. The truth is, God does not promise provision in all areas, but it is easier to remember a particular instance of darkness than all the million ways that God is working for our benefit day after day. For any of you living on campus, you know that they don't serve food on Saturday evenings and Sundays. So when I was a freshman, there were weekends on campus when I was legitimately hungry because I had no money. So one time I prayed and told God that I was hungry and I asked for food. And so more than three times a day on a weekend, uh, would I be hanging out with friends and they would barely eat their food and then give me the rest. They would say, here, I don't want this anymore. And I was blown away by God's kindness um, and the full stomachs of my friends. Um, And it might have happened another week, and I don't remember, but it was extraordinary. But it was a a small instance of God's provision in my life because I wouldn't have starved in a day and a half. Um, But I'm thankful for it. And while it was small, the true gift was that I had a neat story about God's favor in my life. God provides for us in many ways, and that is even bare minimally indicative in the fact that we are all attending church today or viewing online. I have not walked through many difficult trials, as many of you. What I can be sure about is this, that the Bible is clear and explains that it is God's urging desire for us to pray to him always. But if God does not protect us in this life, he is keeping our souls to be preserved in paradise for eternity. This is not just protection we can find any place on earth, or in others, or in ourselves. The Lord alone is our protector and keeper, and he is a good father. But God doesn't just want to bless us with protection. He also encourages us with his presence. So point number two, God desires to give us his presence. So if we look at verse 25 our text of our text, we'll notice that it's a bit longer than 24, and then the last verse, 26, is the longest. This is actually an intentional format, which is supposed to signify the Lord walking nearer in each step. In the original language, the first verse is three words, the next is five, and the last is seven. This idea of approaching language is even more so viewed in the building in each of the first clauses. The Lord make his face shine upon you is indicative of favor and acceptance, which is his grace. Lastly, the idea that God lifts his countenance upon them is the apex of his nearness. God is so close that the joy and tenderness may be visible on his face by his countenance. God is passionate about being near to his people, and he is gracious for it. For the Israelites, this was a rather comprehensible reality. God had visibly revealed himself in very powerful and frightening ways to them. When God descended onto Mount Sinai, Scripture says he came down in a thick cloud with thunder and lightning. And then all the people trembled. Though it is likely that God will not reveal reveal himself to us in terrifying manifestations of his glory, God is still present powerfully. Furthermore, God was not regularly manifesting himself in this way to his people throughout the Old Testament. It was still rare, but God still was near his people in invisible ways. These are a few examples in the Old Testament. Countless times in battle, God will prevail for his people by strengthening the soldiers or causing the enemy to flee. Other times, God will comfort his people by speaking to them through prophets or judges. Many psalms include heavily descriptive language in which God is present during distressful moments. But we New Testament believers experience God's presence in a different way than any one of God's people in the Old Testament. We have the Holy Spirit inside us who attests to an active, powerful, unique change that has occurred. So how is God's presence among believers comforting? Well, the Spirit within us is guiding us in at least four ways. God's Spirit seals our salvation, Ephesians 1.13. God's Spirit aids us in walking in righteousness, Romans eight, four through five. God's Spirit aids us in prayer, Romans eight, twenty six through twenty seven, and God's Spirit aids us to rejoice in him, Romans eight fifteen. This is God being present powerfully. So truthfully, we have an enormous burden lifted from our shoulders. In comparison to God's people in the Old Testament. God has given us His Son so that we would die and be raised that He would die and be raised for us in order that we may walk in a new way of life. But so what? Those are all great things, but some of us experience daily affliction from grief, regret, physical pain, complicated family issues, and strained relationships, and the list goes on. What happens when I am walking in the light, preparing, praying daily, rejoicing daily, evangelizing often, and God hasn't brought me joy, security, relief, or help? Sometimes we doubt God's presence during hardships because we forget that hardship is rather normal. Sometimes even we are not afflicted in the ways I mentioned. Merely being a Christian and discerning evil in the world can be quite despairing. I have two points of encouragement for us if that is the case. Number one, sometimes hardship can be a platform to express faith and experience God in ways that if suffering had not come, we would not know God to be as sweet as we found him in our affliction. Sometimes our downcast emotions can be indicators that we are actually looking at our suffering through faith-filled biblical lenses. The Bible says life is hard. Number two, just because we cannot feel God's presence does not mean that he is absent. That is why the psalmist prays in Psalm 73, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. The Lord is also near in his word. Psalm one nineteen forty-nine through 50 says, Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. When I was a kid, one of my biggest fears was of my house burning down. My dad did this thing with us where he would uh, go through a fire drill with us so we can know what to do in the middle of the night if a fire started. If you're a parent and you do this, uh, I didn't really find any other people that did this. I don't know if it's just because uh, where I'm from, everything is always burning. Um, but this, the point was that my parents were giving us their detailed instructions so that in the midst of danger, they could help us. The important thing that I could bank on was that even though I couldn't always see my parents, I knew that they were in the house someplace. Also, the fact that they had given me detailed instructions on how I might be safe brought me hope because I trusted them. The application is this. If we feel hopeless... The solution is that we must be praying for hope and then rejoicing in his love because he is undoubtedly near. We can also trust that his desire is to be ever closer. That is why we can always strengthen our love and faith more by earnestly seeking a readily available Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his word. And finally, our last point, number three, God desires to give us and bring us his peace. Now, true peace is the culmination of all we've discussed. God's uh, preserving act of salvation and ever-powerful presence is really the essence of God's peace. But this prayer is a benediction, not a beatitude. What does that mean? Well, a beatitude looks to a blessing that, is, that presently exists, while a benediction is a calling for a future blessing. This passage in Numbers is calling for a future blessing. This is important because much of what we've discussed so far exists in the now and future for us as Christians. This is the main difference for us in this passage. Most of the things that God promised the Israelites didn't come to pass because they disobeyed all throughout Scripture. So here's a question What are we really studying here? Has God spoken to Israel in vain? because they are just going to throw away something so tangible and good, was God's blessing of failure. Well, we shouldn't be so quick to only reflect on God's character in this passage. Rather, it is also valuable to see the despairing contrast between the joy and hope of a great nation and how it faded away to ruin. But the truth is, we aren't so different than these, old, than these people in the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament and witness irreverent evil and nonsensical acts, we must know that these expressions are the expressions of our hearts as well. We are really evil towards a good God who desires to be near to us that we may see his face and have peace in our souls. What are we supposed to do with that? We must look to Christ, the good shepherd who goes and seeks out the lost. And for that, verse 27 calls to mind an interesting question. What does it mean to have God's name upon someone? It means that God is attributing part of himself to his people. And in effect, he is taking possession of them. God will attribute them his zeal for his own name. And in doing so, he will never forsake them for his own name's sake. So God has not left them in vain because ultimately for them and for the whole world and everyone who has ever lived... He has given Christ and just to make sure we have a well-rounded view of this concept God has recurringly stated that he is the blesser in this passage because he is the subject primary to the blessing themselves only God can keep bless and provide peace like God can if we spend our time looking for these things and anything else those things will ultimately fail us no country parent Child, sum of money, or substance will ever be powerful enough to give you living water and unending joy. If you have Christ, then you have his name upon you, and you have a powerful, amazing God on your side, desiring to give you his protection, his presence, and ultimately the peace of his gospel. But what is the sum of all of this? This passage includes some wonderful blessings if you are in Christ. If you do not have peace with God, or you are not sure if you do, I encourage you to to please talk with Pastor Mike or one of our deacons about how this change takes place. The insurmountable peace of God's favor is more blessing than we will ever need. But this passage presents a challenge as well. It is the calling of God to Christian maturity, which is to know him better. It is a definitive scriptural truth That experiencing the peace of God, trusting in his presence, and hoping in his protection are products of a faith-filled life. Sometimes we may come to learn this by walking through something difficult, but let's not wait for our trial to come. Let us walk together in those trials in the fiery might and strength of the Lord of Lords, who stands with us in the furnace and hangs for us on a cross. If you feel as if the desire for the Christian walk has grown weary in you, Please pray that God will cause a revival in your soul because there is no darker place we can be than in a place where we know God wants us tenderly but we haven't sought him back. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text that you've given um, to the Israelites, God, and ultimately to us in your scripture. I pray that it will be a guiding light, Lord, for us to uh, walk out what it means to hope in a good God who promises great blessings. Um, I pray ultimately we will see Christ, and we will um, dwell with him in paradise. And I pray that we and our desire for this church would be to grow ever near to you in your scripture and in daily life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.